the first reading is from the book of John, chapter 11, and we'll be reading from verse 17 to 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And the second reading comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we so believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. And let me pray. Father, thank you for this time, and please would you now speak by your Holy Spirit through your word. As we consider especially what you say to us in the face of death and grief, subjects that can be uh, raw for some of us, hard to think about, and yet something we all need to know about and know the hope that you offer in Jesus Christ, the one who is gentle and lowly, the one who suffered death itself in order to bring an end to death and bring new life and hope. Help us to see more clearly what that means for us in our lives today now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a uh, question for us around our tables as we get going to consider. So we live in a world that is both terrified of death itself and terrified of talking about death. That's a statement. I wonder how much you agree with that um, and why or why not. So just round our tables, there's no right or wrong answers to this, just whatever you feel, what do you make of that statement? Do you think it's true? What evidence do you see around you? Let's have a, do that for a few moments. I think there's a lot we, we could say about this, uh, this question. I think, um, I think it's interesting, if you think about the difference for the world today, certainly in this, this country anyway, compared to other times and places throughout history, I guess with regard to death itself, we, we no longer grow up seeing death um, around us kind of in our homes it's been taken off into hospitals and hospices and out of the general experience of normal people uh, and then we think we have a right as well to live long disease-free lives we kind of think that's just how everything ought to be um, and then uh, therefore the reality of the fact that people still die is something we kind of don't want to acknowledge because it shouldn't be like that with regard to talking about death, if you read accounts of people talking about uh, being bereaved, very often people say things like uh, how they, 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 what they found when they, as they went through grief was people around them feel really awkward and they don't know what to say. And so people say, oh, they saw me coming down the corridor and they duck out of the way so they don't have to say anything to them. Or perhaps they also say that everyone was really supportive between when the, when the person died and then with the funeral and everyone was kind of there and, and with them. But then after that, they seemed everything was fine and the bereaved person is left with this massive gap in their life trying to make sense of it. I think it's particularly fitting to have this opportunity to look at these verses um, at, at St. John's. We, 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 we seem to be in a bit of a season of bereavement. For us as a church over the last few months an unusual number of people in the church family have lost 
close family members, loved ones. But whether or not we are grieving right now, it's true, isn't it? Grief is a universal human phenomenon. And, and you just have to live long enough in order to experience it. Um, I was kind of realized, I've come to the point where I've been doing ordained Christian ministry for 16 years. I've taken well over 100 funerals in that time. The vast majority were my first four years in Winsford in Cheshire, where I took about 80. So there are a lot of funerals. But one of the things, when you sit with family after family, and most of these were people outside of the church, just who'd come and said, please take this funeral and just meet these people. And you think, you're suddenly meeting these people you've never met before, and they're grieving. And you realize people, everybody experiences grief in different ways. Everybody's different. And they have different responses to the whole situation um, and different things that they're going to say. But it is a universal thing, nevertheless. It, we all go through this at different times. So what can these verses say to us in, in those circumstances? These verses, let's just remind ourselves, they come towards the end of this letter that Paul's right, uh, written to the Thessalonians. And after encouraging them in their new faith and encouraging them about the evidence of that faith that he can see in their lives, um, he, he moves later on in the letter to remind them of particular things that he taught them in this brief period, remember, that he'd been with them. Just a few weeks and now he's come away and now he's writing to them having heard reports of what's going on with them. And one of the big themes that he keeps coming to in the letter is when Jesus is going to come back, the return of Jesus. And every chapter in our translation ends with the return of Jesus. And in different ways, what Paul is showing them through the letter, how what happens at the end changes what happens now in our lives. But as he writes to them, that raises questions They've got this idea, Jesus is coming back, but that raises questions. And we'll see next time, Paul has been teaching them that, that we should expect that Jesus could return at any time. Uh, but that raises questions. It's, it's very clear that Paul was not claiming Jesus was definitely going to return in their lifetime. So chapter 5, verse 10, whether awake or asleep, we await Jesus' return. So he... he He's not saying it's definitely going to happen in the next few years. It obviously didn't. He doesn't know when it will be. And he doesn't know when it will be, which in one sense is a surprise. Even though he's an apostle writing with God's authority, the point is that isn't something that God has revealed to him. But the message is, he is coming, so be ready. And 2,000 later, it's still true. He is coming, so be ready. But... Perhaps today it's less obvious that for the first Christians, that raised questions once members of the Christian community began to die as time went on. We thought he was coming back. We thought Jesus was supposed to be coming back. Well, he is coming back, but some will still die first. That is the presenting issue that, that, that is driving these verses. And so uniquely in this letter, in these verses, that, verse into 18... Paul tells them, he actually tells them something he hasn't told them before. If you read through the letter carefully, you'll see most of the other things he says, he says, I'm reminding you of this. I, I instructed you about this. Here it is again. These verses are different. So you can see 4, 1 to 2, we instructed you. 4, 9, you already know this. 5, 2, you already know this, but I'm reminding you. 
But verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Here is something new that you need to know, some substantial teaching about Jesus that you don't yet know. And in the light of the fact that people you love have died and are dying, I want you to be able to grieve with hope, he says. And that is the big question you can see on the handout that drives all that he says. How do we grieve with hope? Verse 13, that's the question. How do we grieve with hope? And even in asking that question, just note what he's saying. So he's not saying Christians must not grieve. He's not saying that we can't cry or mourn or be angry or sad in the face of death. And we know that ultimately because of the example of Jesus himself. We heard that in John chapter 11 in the first reading. Did you hear that? What happened in the face of the death of his friend Lazarus, we get that shortest verse in the Bible, or certainly in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And hang on a minute, just think about who this is, who's weeping. This is Jesus, who's about to raise Lazarus from the tomb. He's about to bring him to life again. And so if anyone had the right to say, look, come on guys, this is not an occasion for tears. You know, look what I can do. You know, Jesus would have said that, wouldn't he? But no, this was the Jesus who wept in the face of death. So it is, it is completely reasonable, understandable, normal to grieve and to weep in the face of death. But, Paul says, not like those who have no hope. So those who look away and have nothing to say when someone dies, those who pretend death isn't real and doesn't matter and only happens to other people, those who refuse to, do you notice this, the way people do this, those who always have a kind of euphemism for death, never actually say die, we use other words for it so that we don't have to actually say what has actually happened, that somebody has died. Those words can be so hard to say. No, don't grieve like them but do grieve with hope how well he goes on so we can see on the on that on the outline know that jesus died and rose again first half of verse 14 at the heart of everything paul says here is not an opinion or an idea but a historical event the firmest foundation on which to build everything else that's a subtle thing in these verses I wonder if you noticed this. Paul calls Jesus, he calls him both Jesus and Christ. Now, you might think, well, they're the same person. Yes, they are. But the thing about Paul is in his letters, he often defaults to calling Jesus Christ. He, that's his normal way to refer to Jesus. Christ, emphasizing Jesus' kingship, his rule, but in naming him Jesus, and doing it multiple times, if you look, in naming him Jesus, he's reminding us of Jesus' humanity. Now, as we're saying, they are one and the same person, Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the God who is man. But God became a man and lived a life that involved enduring the suffering of a fallen world, including the agony of death itself. And so just, just to 
think about what that means. That means when we ourselves face death, when we stand with loved ones facing death, we can feel helpless. We can feel alone. But we're never alone. Because Jesus has walked this path before us, this path of grief. He stood at the grave and wept. The path of death. He himself died and experienced that. And then more than that, even more than that, knowing that we're not alone because Jesus knows exactly what it is to grieve and exactly what it is to die, but then in the two words that follow, everything changes. He rose again. He defeated death. See, there is someone who's gone through death and come out the other side. And so we know today in the face of death, when we grieve, death has been defeated. You know, when we have that 2 a.m. moment, you ever have one of these, you, 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 know, you wait and you're sort of lying there and you think, is it all a lie? We made a great mistake in, in our Christian faith. You know, we go back to this. There was a man named Jesus. Eyewitnesses saw him die and then they saw him alive. And everything else that follows depends on that. And Paul then spells out four key implications for those who've died in Christ, those who've fallen asleep in him. This is what is true of Christian people who have died simply putting their faith in Jesus. So we see, first of all, those who have died in Christ will return with Christ. So the second half of verse 14 is the beginning of verse 16. Those who died in Christ will return with Christ. So he says, we believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's, it's, it's a really striking way to describe those who have died, isn't it? They're just asleep. Their bodies go into the ground. Now, at this point, Paul doesn't spell out anything else. There are things we could say from elsewhere in the Bible about the sense of our souls being with Christ while our bodies sleep in the ground. And that is a, a true and biblical thing to say. But actually, here in these verses, that isn't Paul's concern. His focus is not on, what, on sort of life after death, what immediately happens to us after we die. That is not his focus. Actually, his focus is on what one writer calls life after life after death. When Jesus returns, those who have died will come with him. So verse 15, remember his concern is the Thessalonians thinking that those who've died are somehow worse off. And so he's saying, no, no, we who are left, whoever that is, will certainly not precede them or see Jesus first. For the Lord will come down from heaven. And is this something we could miss if we're not concentrating? You know, people sometimes worry that Jesus might come back and we, you know, we wouldn't recognize him. Maybe it's already happened, we don't know. No, no, it won't be like that. It won't be like Jesus' first coming. In relative poverty, it will be with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. And all of that is kind of Old Testament imagery for what happens when God comes. You're not going to miss it. That's what he's saying. But again, what's Paul's point? It won't be worse for those who've died because the dead in Christ will rise first. And so that's the next thing. Those who have died in Christ will rise 
with Christ. Second half of verse 16. Whatever might happen in the time that our bodies sleep in the ground, the key thing is that eternity is not ultimately bodiless. It is embodied in new, perfect bodies like the body with which Jesus rose from the dead. And again, that's where we have to keep looking back to. Jesus died and rose so we can be confident that we too will die and rise if we're trusting in him. And we will receive new, better, perfect bodies. See, the world around us tells us, doesn't it, to fear old age in different ways. You know, to fight it with all our energy and creams and all that kind of thing. But there is, you know, of course there is wisdom uh, in, in caring for our broken bodies here and now. Each day that we get older and more bits fall off and, and wobble and need to be replaced, literally, for some of us, each day is a day closer not to oblivion, but to new, perfect bodies rising with Christ. That is the future, isn't it? Each day, one day closer to that, to him. But then there's even more. So those who died in Christ will rise with Christ then. Those who have died in Christ will be reunited in Christ. Beginning of verse 17, this is what the Thessalonians were worried about. You will see your loved ones who have died with their faith in Christ. There will be reunion. What a, what a wonderful hope and joy and answer to the horrible separation that death brings from our loved ones. That's the headline from these verses. Now, it's worth saying, actually, that just this verse alone, if you look at it, has caused a fair amount of controversy in Christian circles over the years. And there's a whole theology of, of something called rapture that may mean, something to, may mean quite a lot to you, may mean absolutely nothing to you. Uh, but it's kind of people seize on this thing of, ah, oh, those who are left being caught up with them in the air. So there's a, whole, there's a whole series of books, the Left Behind series, which is, which is kind of all about what this might be about. Except the, the issue is it's not what it's about. And, and let me show you why. One key thing to notice here is, that, as I said before at the beginning, it's clear that this is the, the one thing in the letter that Paul has not taught them before. Okay, so there's been lots of other things where he's alluding back and so... We as readers now have to kind of think, what might he have said that would meant, you know, that he's alluding back and trying to fill in the gaps. But, no, th this is not what he's doing here. This is all he's told them. And so it's not like, you know, if you're going to get a sort of full-blown left-behind series kind of, there's going to be this and then this is going to happen and there's going to be some people left behind and the Christians are all going to one day suddenly disappear and that's going to be, you know, a certain number of years after that happened and all this kind of thing and... and uh, Believe me, there's a very sort of well-thought-out kind of um, interpretation of this that some people bring to it. Um, but it, it, if that was what Paul was intending, the, you see, the point is, Paul would have needed to spell that out to them because he hasn't told them this before. So if he's sort of half alluding to a full-blown theology of rapture, he would need to be much more full-blown about it. But he isn't. So, okay, well, we might still ask then, well, what is this about? What are the clouds about? What is the air about? Well, the clouds, again, are just standard Old Testament description 
of what it looks like when God comes. So think of the cloud in Exodus leading God's people. Think of the clouds in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at that a few months ago. The Son of Man. How does he come? He comes on the clouds. So that, that, that's what this is. That's what's going on here. It's picking up on that kind of imagery. And, uh, and meets it. So, so, you know, Jesus is coming back. Of course he's going to come on the clouds. That's what God does when he comes. And then what about the air? Well, the, the, you know, meeting them. It's sort of, you imagine sort of, you know, you float up in the air. What is, what, what's this about? Well, it, it, the air is, is what's in between heaven and earth. So if that's your kind of way of looking at the world, the air is the bit in between. Um, and again, sometimes we just have to be satisfied with the fact that this is a, a bit of a, a passing reference to something. That you know, If Paul wanted us to be absolutely clear about what exactly this is going to look like so that we could kind of make a film so that we could all see what it looked like, he would have been a lot clearer than he is. Because this is the only thing he says to the Thessalonians about it, and then he moves on. It's not his primary concern to kind of map it out. That isn't what he's trying to communicate. You see, sometimes our questions are not Paul's questions. And Paul's the one writing with the authority of God. Do you see? So sometimes we just have to go, okay, well, we don't know. Let's wait and see. It will happen, so let's, let's wait and see what it, what, what it actually means. But let's not miss what Paul thinks it's important that we actually hear. And where, we, where he lands is the fourth thing to see. This is where he, what he actually wants us to go home with, as you like, if you like. Those who have died in Christ will be with Christ forever. So that's the second half of verse 17. Those who have died in Christ will be with Christ forever. And, you know, at this point, we probably have loads of questions, you know, about when we start thinking about eternity and we start thinking about what it means to be there in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we want to think, we, we want to know, where is that? Where, where, what's that going to look like? How is everyone going to fit in? What's going to happen with, different, with all the countries? Is it going to look the same? Is it going to look different? And there's a highly symbolic description of a city at the end of the book of Revelation, but the key words there are highly symbolic. You see, we, we, we don't know what it will look like. But, and in one sense, Paul, Paul doesn't think that's important. As I, as I often quote, Martin Luther made the, the comment, we know as much about the new heavens and the new earth to come as an unborn baby in their mother's womb knows about the world into which they're about to be born. So there's a lot we don't know, but what we do know is the key thing. Verse, end of verse 17, what do we know? Jesus will be there. That's the key thing. See, all the unborn baby needs is a loving mother and father. And, and he or she knows something of that love and protection, even in the womb, actually. And it's the same for Christians. What we need to know is Jesus will be there. The same Jesus who loves us, who died and rose for us. We get to spend eternity with him. And so whatever that is like, it will be amazing because he will be there. So encourage one another with these words. That's where we'll end. That's where we'll end in, in, in a moment. It's just worth noting as we finish, though, as we've said all along, Paul doesn't cover everything here. He doesn't cover all 
our questions. Maybe our question is, well, what about when someone dies and they didn't appear to be trusting in Jesus? What can we say then? Well, as I said, this, that isn't Paul's concern. He was not, he's not answering that question. That isn't what the Thessalonians were worried about. But maybe it's helpful to point out, you know, when that happens, first of all, we are not God. And so actually we're wrong to claim that we know for certain what someone is thinking or feeling, even in their final moments. You know, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he repented right at the end of his life. It is not impossible. But we're being presumptuous if we insist we know for certain that someone definitely didn't do that. We are not God. And beyond that, we can also say God is good. He is absolutely good. He is absolutely fair and he's absolutely just. That doesn't mean he's going to do exactly what we want and what we think he should do. No, it's better than that. He's going to do what is actually right and fair and just because we can trust him to do that. And so perhaps it is helpful for us just to know we won't arrive at the end and be saying, oh God, you got this one wrong. Now, we might find that hard to believe and work through, but there is no way we will be saying that. How can I be sure of that? Because this is the God who sent Jesus to die and rise. We can trust him. He's that kind of God. He's an all-giving, all-generous, all-kind, all-just, all-fair God. And sometimes we just have to say, that's enough. I'm going to leave that with him. be very happy to talk further with anyone if that is your particular question but beyond that we should also be saying to one another you know if you're here and you know actually you're not trusting in Christ Paul would be saying to you well have you thought about what would happen if you died as we know one day we all will and sometimes it happens sooner than we think it's going to life is unpredictable again you know, our world pretends it's possible to have everything under control, but the reality is we don't know what's around the corner. But in Jesus, there is the possibility of the confidence of life beyond the grave, and he offers it for free simply by putting our trust in Jesus. So I'd love to talk more with anyone who wants to think about that as well. But let's just spend a few final moments before our final song with one, uh, just with another question around our tables. So verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So let's just, if you're happy to, to say so, how does 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 that we've been looking at, how does it encourage you? How does it encourage those who are grieving? Let's just have a few moments around our tables and I'll hand back to David for our final song. <laughs>